All right, we're looking at Acts 2, a couple of verses in Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. Um, and we're kind of what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks to look at these verses. And uh, in these verses, kind of remind you where we are. At the beginning of Acts 2, there's 120 Christians. That's it. Um, the Holy Spirit comes onto the apostles as Jesus promised that he would in Acts 1 8. At the end of Acts 2, there's 3,120 Christians. Um, If you read it, Peter gets up, preaches, 3,000 people come to faith, are baptized, spirits poured out to them. 9 o'clock in the morning, 120 Christians in the world. By that evening, 3,120. The verses we're about to read is what happens next. These These are the first people who understand Jesus deeply and fully after his resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And here's, this is really the point of this week and next week. When the gospel truly and biblically goes out, when real biblical evangelism occurs, church breaks out, which sounds really boring to us. But I hope that you'll find life in it. But when the gospel goes out into the world, into people's lives, this is the first thing that happens. These are the verses that first happen when 3,000 new Christians come to faith. Church just starts. Church breaks out. That's the response to biblical evangelism. With that in mind, let's read how the first Christians responded to the first evangelistic sermon. So those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I thank you for the story of our forefathers, of the early Christians coming to faith, dear God. And I thank you for the church. And Lord, as we consider a topic that sometimes is frustrating, uh, a topic that's sometimes confusing, dear Lord, we know that you are good your word is true, that it brings light and life, and I pray that you would attend to it with your Holy Spirit, and you would teach us, dear God. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, June 7th of 2010 was a momentous day in the life of Britton Wood. Uh, that morning, a friend of mine that many of y'all know, a guy named Ben Waller, who's an RUF turn, intern at Alabama, called me and said, Britton you got to come work out with me today. <laughs> and um, you know how maybe some of y'all feel this way about RUF for conference. We're like, somebody just keeps asking you to do something. And so at one point you're like, I'll just say yes to get it over with. I love Ben, love Ben. But it was just kind of like, okay, fine. I'll come do your workout just to kind of get it over with. And um, I showed up and worked out with him and Jake. Where's Jake? I showed up. 
at this weird little warehouse on Blanding Street. It's this small, non-air-conditioned warehouse. This is June in Columbia. And I walked in, and there are all these guys. They're all uh, policemen and infantry in the military. They all have their shirts off, and they have these tattoos all over their body that are totally awesome, but are really kind of scary at the same time. And, like, you're wondering, are these, like, notches of people you've killed? Or, like, (laughs) where am I? Am I safe here? Um, And Ben hands me a jump rope, and he goes, can you do a double under? I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, a double under for for the uninitiated. Uh, A double under is jumping and then the jump rope going around twice. So... I get the jump rope, and they have these, like, really intense jump ropes. Everything there is intense, even the jump ropes. I mean, I'm not just saying that. They have intense jump ropes. Um, so I jump up, and, you know, I can do one. You know, I'm not that out of shape. But, but the second time around, all you do is just beat the crap out of your shins with the jump rope. And so I keep trying, and all I'm doing is just lacerating the front of my shins with this jump rope until finally, after, like, six tries, I get a dumbbell under. And he goes, all right. Now you've got to do 100 of those. And what we did that day, this is what Ben Waller led me through, 100 double-unders. Okay, I'm not a workout warrior. Up until June 7, 2010, me working out twice a week involved taking a walk with a double stroller and two five-year-olds, which is actually kind of hard, um, <laughs> or possibly running a mile, but running the whole mile is a little bit tough for me. That's it. That's twice a week, something like akin to that. So this is, I'm not a workout warrior, right? 100 double-unders, then you have to run a quarter mile. Then you have to do 50 squats. Then you run a quarter mile. Then you have to jump up on a 24-inch box 50 times. Then you run a quarter mile. Then you do 50 split jumps. A split jump is a lunge, but where you jump out of the lunge, like off the ground. 50 of those, run a quarter mile, and then finish with 50 more double-unders. Uh, two things were, like, on my mind and heart. I'm watching all these guys with tattoos finish in, like, 12 minutes. They're watching me for, for a lot longer than 12 minutes. Um, in the middle of the workout, literally, there are two things running through my mind the whole time. I'm thinking, okay, both my grand, one grandfather died from a heart attack. My other grandfather's lived through a couple. All my uncles, parents all on heart medication. We're, we're, I'm dying from a heart attack. Elizabeth knows that. We talked about it when we got married. That's just what's going to happen. That's what happens to Woods. Um, <laughs> and then, so that's first thought. Everybody in my family has heart disease. All of their hearts explode at one point. <laughs> my second thought is, I still have two five-year-olds and two three-year-olds. I'm like, I need to go ride a motorcycle. That's a lot better activity because if I mash up my face, they can surgically reconstruct my face they can't put together a heart that explodes. This is the most irresponsible activity I could have ever done. It was horrible. It was, the hardest, it was 30 minutes long. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and here's what happened. From June 7, 2010 until today, I've gone back to be with those people five days a week ever since then. Why? Because when people go through something intense together... It forms a community. And the more intense it is, the more tight the community forms. It was hard. I didn't like it. It was horrible. But all the guys with the tattoos, they loved me. Like, 
Jake loved me, Ben loved me, they said, you're doing right, they said, we've all been there before, and I went through the most painful thing I've ever done, and I couldn't stop going back. I love being with those people, and I love doing things with them. Some of y'all have partaken with me. I hope you can join me there. <laughs> when people go through something intense together, community informs. Uh, if you've had parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles be in combat. My grandfather fought in World War II. He was in combat. He got shot at. The guys he was in a plane with 60 years ago are still his best friends. He still feels more intimately connected to them than anybody. Uh, fraternities understand this implicitly. The hazing thing is not just about being mean to the guys who are pledging. They understand when you put a group of guys together through something really horrible, it knits them together. That's the purpose of hazing. not saying it's good, but I'm saying they actually understand something there. And so when you meet guys who've been through the hazing and been initiated, they're deeply committed to their pledge class, right? When people go through something intense together, community forms. And the question then for us as Christians as we think about the church is, why is community so frustrating when we put it in the Christian context and think about Christian community and church? Why is it so frustrating? Why is it that most of us aren't really happy with our community? And I think the reason is given to us when we see how these people respond to this first sermon. Verse 37, we talked about it last week. You don't have it there. But just verses before, Peter finishes his sermon, and this is what we're told. They heard this, and they were cut to the heart. We don't find communion because we actually haven't seen and experienced how deep gospel proclamation goes into who we are, that it goes down to the very core of our being. It's really kind of the most intense thing we encounter, but we want to hold it out here. And so what we do instead is we fake community. Because we read the Bible, we're church, community, people are supposed to be together, fellowship, all that kind of stuff. So we want to have it, and so what we do is we fake community. And we fake community by creating programs that allow us to be together, and we can do something so we'll feel good and christian and good about ourselves. And in so doing, we're never cut to the heart. We never weep in despair of ourselves. We never, we never really want to struggle with the deep darkness. We, we don't want to see just how not right we really are. And so we never seek a redeemer who's merciful to save. We don't rejoice in life freely given and freely received. We like Jesus as a guy who can operate as a therapist and he make us feel better about ourselves, but we don't weep and long for a Savior. Because we want to keep it up here. We don't want the gospel to go deep into the deep pits of vanity that are in all of us, in the deep pits of selfishness and anger and lust and rage and jealousy that are who we are at our core. Because when it goes down there and we allow it to touch those places, it's hard and it's painful. It's intense. We don't want it to dig deep down into our emotional life and show us that at the core of our being, we're just all a wreck. And all this pleasantness that we can kind of put out front in front of everybody, it's kind of a lie. Christians, I mean, if we believe the Bible, Christians should be the most humble, non-judgmental people in the world. And we would be if the gospel would cut us to our heart. We'd stop thinking, oh, you know, I'm basically good. I live it. I do it right. And then there are those other people. As long as you believe that there are good people and there are bad people, you're never going to understand the church. 
As long as you believe they're good people and they're bad people, you're never going to understand the church. Fellowship's going to be mysterious to you. You'll get involved in a lot of programs, and you'll still feel disconnected from the body and disconnected from the head. You'll be vaguely aware the Bible talks about this kind of intense friendship, fellowship among God's people, but you'll always feel like you're living on the surface of that fellowship. You always want it, but you'll never attain it. And so what I want us to look at, really for the next two weeks, is what does the community formed around this intense experience look like? What are the marks of it, the external marks, and how do we get it? What, are the, what does the community look like, and how do we get it? And we're going we're gonna to explore that second question at the end today, but more so next week. The first, we're really just looking at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And the first thing you have to know is you've got to know what that word devoted means. It's a strong, persistent commitment. The way Sinclair Ferguson actually translates it is an addiction. He said that's the best way to represent the intensity of how deeply they were connected to these marks. And here's the shocker. This is the thing that's happening right now. They're gathering together to sit under preaching, to sing together, to pray together, to take the Lord's Supper together seven days a week. Now, if we wanted to do that today, if a pastor or a session said, you know, we want to we start a church program. We want to preach seven days a week. We want to have seven services a week. The way that would happen is the session would agree to it that you'd have like, the 15% of the congregation that's people pleasers and Pharisees, so they go to it because they go to every Christian thing that you announce ever. Everybody else, they'd have to warm up and they'd have to sell them hard on that cause because that's crazy, seven worship services a week. That's not how it happened here. The people wanted seven worship services a week. John Calvin preached in Geneva seven days a week. It wasn't the leaders trying to get everybody to do something they didn't want to do. It was the apostles trying to keep up with the demand. Because church wasn't a duty and a burden. It was a delight. I mean, that's not even comprehensible enough to us that it would be so delightful that we'd long for it every day of the week. Right? Sundays. It's when you're supposed to sleep in, but because you're a good person, you have to wake up early and go to something you don't want to go to or they sing songs you don't like, Right? What if we delighted in the preaching of God's word and fellowshipping together so much that we're asking our preachers to have more services? That's how devoted they were. They were devoted to four things. The first thing we're told is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Again, Acts 1-8 is our guiding light for, this whole, for the whole book of Acts. It is the summary verse. This is when Jesus tells the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What he would do is he would empower the apostles, the men who had been with Jesus in this small group Bible study for three years, to then go and tell the world everything that they had seen and heard and experienced with regard to Jesus. The people were saying, we want to get together seven days a week and have you tell us everything you know about Jesus. Ephesians 2 gives us an important kind of link between that first century experience of those first Christians and us today. When Paul tells us that the church is the household of God is built 
on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but the cornerstone, the fundamental piece from which the church builds itself, from which a building goes up, is Jesus. And what that means is to be in apostolic teaching, to devote ourselves to apostolic teaching, first means this. It's Christ-centered. It's Christ-centered. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles were called to testify about what they had seen and heard from Jesus. If you read Acts, there's several sermons all throughout Acts. Long sermons. You can read sermons that Peter preached. The apostles, when they preach, here's what they never do. They never give, give a list of things to do to fix your marriage. They never give you a list of things to do to find financial security. They never give you a list of things to do to have a consistent, meaningful, quiet time. Never happens. They never give you a list of things to do of how to go through college without giving in to the social pressure to party. Never happens. They never preach that way, ever. Read their sermons. They just talk about Jesus from beginning to end. Their sermons are, Jesus is God, Jesus is man, Jesus is king, Jesus was spoken about by the prophets, is what the prophets were all about. Jesus healed, Jesus forgives sin, Jesus lived, He was perfect, He died, He rose again, He ascended, and He sits on the throne of heaven. That's how the apostles preached. They just talked about those points every single time. Now here's a simple question to ask when you consider the way you encounter Scripture. Who fixes the mess in the Bible studies you hear or in the sermons you hear preached? Who fixes the mess? Is the preacher telling you how to fix the mess? Or is he telling you how Jesus fixes it? Because you see, one way makes you the hero and Jesus is just an aid that comes along and helps you along so you can get it together. The other one makes Jesus the hero and he fixes your life. And your lifestyle changes, not because you're given a 10-step plan to improve it, but because you found that there is a merciful king. And he's beautiful and he's worthy of all your love. And love makes a far better motivator over a long time than simply the fear that something bad will happen if you don't get your 10-step plan into action. Apostolic teaching was all about Jesus. This Sunday, next Sunday following Sunday, wherever you go to church. This is your question. Who's the hero? Who fixes it? Is it Jesus? Or is it you? If it's you, it's time to go church shopping. I'm not big on church shopping. I think we do it too much. If your preacher is telling you how you fix the mess, he's not preaching the Bible. It's Christ-centered, and it's biblically-based. When Paul says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the prophets were scripture to them. And he's making an important kind of equalization right there. He's saying the apostles and the prophets are the same. They're both scripture. The apostles' words and the prophets' words go hand in hand. They're given the same weight, the same thing. The mark of a community that's centered on Christ is that people are addicted to his word. The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all about him. To be a community of Christ is to be rehearsed in and addicted to his stories, which is the Bible. This is why. 
Because stories actually establish and identify and confirm and secure us inside of our communities. They inform our minds and they form our hearts. See, what happened, CrossFit again, this is the gym I work out at, what happened at CrossFit, A, is I got hooked, not out of guilt, but actually, or trudging duty, I got hooked out of a growing love, and this is what I did next. I went to Wikipedia, right? To read everything I could about CrossFit. Critics, people who are for it, people who are against it, why they're for it, why they're against it. Then I found CrossFit.com. This is the main site. They talk about main site all the time. And um, there's years of information on there. It's taken me months. I haven't gotten through all of it. All of a sudden, though, as I started reading about the stories of CrossFit, when I walked into the gym, I understood all these conversations that were taking place that previously I was just like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they talk about paleo diets. I still don't understand that one. They talk about doing Murph, and I'm like, yeah, Murph, we're doing Murph. <laughs> they talk about fight gone bad, like fight gone Fight gone bad. Grammar's not real big here, but okay, fight gone bad. Um, but I became familiar with the words and the stories. Now I understand all those things. And you know what that does? That further kind of identifies me and secures me within that community. You, we experience this all the time with groups of people. You walked in tonight, and everybody walked in here feeling on some level a different kind of connection to the group that's in this room. And right now, if I mention, like, Tanner, where's Tanner? See, everybody, people, a couple people laugh, right? <laughs> now more people laugh. Um, those of you who know stories about Tanner, you all of a sudden felt connected, and on the inside, and people who didn't know stories about Tanner were like, I'm not going to come back here. They do inside jokes from the pulpit. That's like the biggest sin ever, right? <laughs> Nobody feels connected now. I don't know who Tanner is. I'm never coming back, Right? You know stories about Tanner? You know stories about other people in this group? You start to feel a part of this group. Stories are really actually what make groups. Family stories. Your family. This is around at holidays. Everybody does and tells stories. They might be good. They might be bad. But they tell stories. They give you your identity, and they give you your group. Shared stories are instrumental to being a community together. And you kind of can't expect to have a vibrant life within God's people if you refuse to devote yourself to the stories that attach you to them and attach you to Him. And so, real simple application, if you're a new believer or an old believer and you don't know how to read the Bible, you all going to think I'm kidding. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible is actually the best devotional book you'll ever buy, actually, whether or not you think of yourself as a mature believer or not. If you want to know how to read the Bible... Ask anybody who actually took me up on this recommendation. You're going to think I'm kidding. You think, oh, he's saying one of those over-the-top statements that's supposed to be funny. I'm not saying that right now. You'll cry when you read this. You really will cry when you read this. If you're just on the outset of devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching and to the Lord's Word, look, pictures, they're great. Never Look, only text on one page. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. This takes you through the story of Scripture, and it takes you through the story, a Christ-centered story of Scripture. Y'all, 
Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's incredible. Come look at it. This is why we have small groups in RUF. You don't have to be involved in a small group in RUF. If you're not involved in a small group, besides large group, those are the other places where we're getting together and devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're trying to learn the stories of God's people, to be connected with God's people and be connected with God. Lauren and Willie's, the freshman guys, the freshman girls, Melissa and Hannah's girls stuff, the guys' fellowship groups, those are all places where we're trying to figure out how God's people get together and devote themselves to the teaching to learn the stories of his people. They're addicted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they're addicted to fellowship. A second mark of the community of Christ, centered on Christ, is fellowship. They're devoted, not just to the apostles' teaching, but to one another. And the way one commentator explains it is that it's a connection to, between, and for each other. If we begin to understand this word fellowship, this Greek word koinonia, you might have heard that. Your church might have used it for, to name a cool small group or something like that. Um, if we understand this word, you'll know you're understanding it when you realize it actually goes against American culture, but also our flesh. Because what this word means, well, here, this is why it goes against, because this is our natural inclination, both within relationships and with groups. <clears throat> How is this working for me? Right? We're shopping with friendships, boyfriend, girlfriends, student groups, campus ministries, churches, all kinds of groups. Our fundamental question is, is am I getting out of this what I want? Is this working for me? And that's not fellowship. But that's, I mean, listen to the way you talk about your friendships, and especially listen to the way you talk about your dating relationships. You're dating the other person for the purpose of them making you happy. I'll go ahead and tell you now, if you get married that way, prepare for a lifetime of an empty marriage. If you think the purpose of your marriage is for them to make you happy, for you to get something out of it. That's not fellowship. And what that reveals is that what we call friendships and what we call community is actually us just going out and asking people to join the Me Admiration Society. And we kick them out when they're not admiring us or doing what we want or we're not getting something out of it. Fellowship described here is giving of oneself to others. It's the complete opposite of the way we actually enter into our relationships. That's the picture later in the passage where everybody teaches, ah, oh, Christianity teaches communism, which it doesn't. We're going to talk about it next week. They saw people who had need. This is how they entered into friendships. They didn't think, what do I need? How is this going to work out for me? The way they entered into friendships is they saw other people and saw their need, gave their stuff away, made their life more difficult for the sake of alleviating someone else's pain. They walked into all the relationships not thinking, here's what I need, here are my whining points, here are the things I'm unhappy about, how can these people make me happy again? They walked in and thought, what can I do for these people? Don't you want to be a part of a community where instead of everybody vying for their own little personal kingdom, where people are laboring for each other? where people are they're running into others' needs and forgetting about their own. That's what's being depicted here. Instead of seeing all your unhappiness, you walk into a place and you see other people's unhappiness and you run into it with your time and with your resources and your emotional energy. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you do that, it's hard. It's actually, it's really hard. But don't you want to be a part of a community like that? This is the CrossFit sermon. I apologize to those of you that drives nuts. 
Today, beforehand, Jake texted me. I thought I'd done really good today on today's workout. I've been, I've been going so consistently. And he looked at my time on the board. I'd gone in earlier. And he said, I'm going to beat Britain's time today. And he texted me today. What did you beat me by? Yeah, I'm 41. <laughs> I'm 31. I have four kids, so they like. I think there's a way we could handicap it. But <laughs> he beat me. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. I I don't beat Jake often. I beat him last week. You know what? Jake was excited for me. He delighted in me doing well, even when it meant that I did better than him. At the gym, people just love to see other people succeed. What would it be like if you thought about, if you delighted in, not how happy can you be in this relationship, but your true delight was like, man, what if they succeeded? What if my friend succeeded? What if good things happened to them? Can you be excited if someone else gets along in life easier and better than you? In God's among God's people, it thrives, it grows, it's healthy, and it's revealed to be one centered on Christ when people give themselves for others, when they set aside their needs and just run into other people's needs and go there. I mean, what if we walked into RUF tonight? Everybody walked in, different levels of social comfort in this room, right? And didn't think, I'm uncomfortable. How can I get comfortable to get here? Like, who can I talk to that makes me feel normal for a couple seconds? You know, we're all tired of talking about Marcus Lattimore because if you don't know each other, that's what you talk about right now, right? (laughs) He's a great guy. Good running back. Um, What instead, what if instead of walking in and thinking, ah, I'm so uncomfortable, you walked in and you saw uncomfortable people and moved toward them? What if you saw people's social and emotional needs instead of being fixated on your own? Man, we'd all want to be a part of a community like that. They're addicted to the apostles' teaching. They're addicted to giving of themselves to each other. And they're addicted to ritual. Next thing we're told is that they are devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper. That's how Jesus talks about it in Luke 24, later in Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord's Supper is breaking bread. This is a ritual. And just like serving each other and just like stories bind a community together, so do rituals. And you might be thinking like, we're post-enlightenment, we're post-modern, like we're not into ritual, that's old religious terms. That doesn't have a place in today's kind of modern culture. Okay, here's the reality. Is regardless of whether or not you feel like that word's dated, all of life is ritual. Basically everything you did today was ritual. You woke up at a time that you set. You groomed yourself a particular way, hopefully. (laughs) You chose to eat. You chose certain clothes. You went to your class at a certain time. You chose lunch. You chose your recreation. That's all ritual. And you're thinking, no, that's not a ritual. No, that's just how deeply embedded the ritual is that you can't even think about it that way. All of life is ritual. College football is ritual. Intramural sports is ritual. Student organizations is ritual. You can't name something that's not ritual. That's not a planned organizing activity that either gives you an identity as an individual, a sense of regularity, or as a group. You, you can't come up with something that's not ritual. I'll prove this to you because I've seen the best possible attempt at someone trying to say, life's not a ritual. In Athens, Greece, we went to the University of Athens. 
they have dozens of student groups. They're all political. No religious organizations, no service organizations. Really and truly, they're all political, dozens of them. And I, have, I, I wish I'd brought this tonight. I have a poster from the anarchist group, right? I mean, that's the most intriguing student group, the anarchist group. The anarchist, okay? Have a poster with a meeting day and a meeting time and a speaker who's going to cover a topic. The anarchists have rituals. If the anarchists have rituals, everybody has rituals. God's people break bread together. That's our ritual. And it's fundamental to our identity because rites are full of meaning and they consolidate and they confirm people into a community. And this is what the breaking of bread does because it's full of power. See, in the preaching of God's word, the gospel is presented to our ears and to our minds. It engages our hearts, certainly. But God knows that we're more than just simply rational beings, that we're affected by more than just someone making a rational argument for something. And the Lord's Supper is actually the gospel presented to our mouth, to our nose, to our hands. It's actually preaching is the gospel proclaimed auditorily. The Lord's Supper is the gospel proclaimed to the other senses. It's actually a drama is what it is. And Jesus says in the gospel, he says, see this bread? And he performs a drama and he breaks it. He said, this bread is broken just like my body was broken for you. And the drama doesn't stop there. He doesn't do it in front of everybody so they can see a visual illustration of something breaking, that someone his body breaking. He says, now here's how the drama gets really intense. Now y'all all eat a piece of this bread. You eat this bread and the purpose is to say, Jesus is saying, I'm so united to you by dying your death that it's like I am food and as you eat, you and I become one and I give you life. Then he takes the cup he says, this wine is my blood. It's the blood of the covenant. It's the blood that was shed so that yours wouldn't have to be. Now drink it. He doesn't just hold it up as a visual illustration. It's participation. He says, drink it. Become so near to me that we are actually in one another. It's an intimate ritual. It's a rich ritual. It's Jesus' death demonstrated in the form of drama And it's also our faith and trust in Him demonstrated in the form of taking it and eating it and drinking it and it coming into us and becoming part of us and even giving us life. Communion is the best thing we do. And we do it together. We see other people eating from the same loaf and other people drinking from the same cup because we're all trusting in the same Savior. Every phone conversation with my dad ends by him saying, I love you, son. And it's a ritual, and I never get tired of it. It never becomes rote. It never becomes empty. It never loses its power. In fact, over the years, I anticipate it more and more. It firmly, it strengthens me. It encourages me. It secures me. The ritual of my earthly father confirming his love for me never grows old. There have been a couple of times where just like circumstances got us cut off. I can't tell you how much I miss my father telling me and ending the conversation with, I love you, son. How much sweeter is the ritual of our Heavenly Father saying over and over again, I love you to death. Now, REF is not the church. What REF is, it's actually an arm of the church. We're overseen by the church. What we functionally are is a community group of the church 
on campus. Man, if you're a believer tonight, if you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, I urge you, if you have one hour a week and you come to RUF instead of church, I hate doing this. I'm always nervous about doing this. I'm always nervous. I want to run everybody off. You're kind of not invited to RUF anymore. Go be with God's people. If you've got one hour a week and it's either Sunday morning or Tuesday night, I, I kind of uninvite you to RUF. Go be with God's people Sunday morning. Don't miss out on this ritual. Don't miss out on partaking of Jesus' body and his blood. If you've got two hour weeks, two hours a week, come on back to RUF. One hour a week for the Christians in here, you're not invited. Be with God's people on Sunday. They're addicted to the teaching, to each other, to ritual, and lastly, to prayer together. Y'all, prayer is simply this. It's just presenting your heart to God. It's presenting your inadequacy, presenting your dreams, presenting your sins, your hopes, presenting yourself to God and saying, Lord, with all of this, may your will be done. Prayer is the means by which we react back to God. And we see here the community joining together in prayer. And there's nothing so intimate as prayer. Because in intimacy, what that does is it binds people together. They called on their Father together, Father in heaven, holy is your name. And they cried together for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And if you're wondering what it means in those Verses in the Lord's in the uh, in in the in the Lord's prayer, kingdom come and His will be done on earth as in heaven. This is what that means. You can pray it this way too. Lord, fix this world. It's not right anymore. There's abuse everywhere in my life and in friends' life. Lord, fix it. That's what kingdom come means. Lord, bring your kingdom. Lord, fix addiction. Fix broken families. Fix me. Fix my friendships. Make my family better. You can bring your deepest longings to God and say, Lord, bring your kingdom here. You can ask for daily provision. You can ask for forgiveness. You can ask for the capacity to stop being bitter towards your friends and begin to forgive them. You can ask to be delivered from the dark places that you can't say no when you're in those dark places. You can say, Lord, deliver me from those places. And you can do all of that because it's all His and He has the power to do it. The Lord's Prayer is the best cry that the Christian gets to cry. Brothers and sisters, cry it together. Cry it together. This is what I hope, this is what I hope is taking place in small groups in RUF, but any other small groups y'all are involved in. Cry to your Father that He would make the world right again and He would make you right again. That our hearts would fall in love with Him because we know they really don't really love Him very much. <coughs> that he would bring justice, that he would bring peace into our lives. And you might be wondering, and I get this, I don't know these people yet, I'm new, right? Everybody's felt that way at different points. You know, I can't go into a small group and kind of engage in something that intimate together, that's a little weird. I get that. We've all been in that context. But if you get involved, if you come and you find out that they also know the Savior that you know, then you're in good and safe company and you can cry with them, even though you don't know they're all their stories yet. Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Here's the question. How did all of this happen? How do we get in on that? Sounds pretty good. 
right? How do we make that happen? But C.S. Lewis makes an important point in a book called The Four Loves. And he says this. Someone, he's talking about friendship, and he says someone who simply wants friends never really gets them. If all people are doing is seeking friends, I want friends, it's actually hard to make friends that way because his point is, and this is what he goes on to say, that friendship is not something you seek out. Friendship is something that gets discovered. And his point is this. He says this, friendship is a you two moment. Not the band, Y-O-U-T-O-O. It's a you two moment. Friendship occurs, it involves three things. You, another person, and a third object that together y'all realized you love it as well. You love this as well. When I met Miller last year trying to get to know freshmen, talking about Gamecock football because that's what you do at first. And um, is Miller here? Where's Miller? I don't know how early it was, but for some reason we started talking. One of us brought up a song of ice and fire which is this amazing series that you should all read, but not if you haven't read the Bible. Go there first. But um, <laughs> we, had the, we had this moment that C.S. Lewis is talking about, and I actually felt a whole lot closer to Miller when all of a sudden we realized, dude, do you like Song of Ice and Fire? And he's like, dude, do you like Song of Ice and Fire? And I'm like, oh, we had a little Song of Ice and Fire dance and everything, right? <laughs> That's how friendship happens. It's when you discover someone else loves something you love. It's not about team building exercises and trust falls. That's actually kind of an implicit, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a confession like, we don't know how to form community, so let's do trust falls, right? <laughs> Friendship happens and community happens when two people find out they love the same thing. Because that's exactly what happened in Acts 2. Their hearts were cut deep. In Luke 24, Jesus is risen from the dead. He meets these people on the road. They don't know who he is. And what we're told that Jesus does is he goes through the entire Old Testament and tells them about how the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. When he's done with the lesson, he walks away and all of a sudden it dawns on them, oh my gosh, that's Jesus, the guy who died, and now he's risen again. And then they say this to each other, that our hearts not burn within us while he spoke. At the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we're told their hearts were cut deep as he taught they came to an acute and deep and intense awareness of their inadequacy, of their sin, of their selfishness. They stopped cataloging their sin as the number of times I did this bad thing this week. Their hearts were just cut. They saw the problem was not with what they did, but the fact that their heart and their heart they neither regarded nor loved the true king, and it went far deeper than just the different ways we try to quantify how many times we sinned each week. It went down into their hearts. And they discovered a beautiful Savior. That's how the community formed. They repented. They turned to Jesus, seeing that even as our sin runs so much deeper than any of us will ever understand, then the stupid kind of couple of times we try to quantify it, King Jesus is gracious. And upon receiving that grace, they looked at each other and said, You too. And they got together and said, well, we want to know more about this. And they got together and said, well, I want you to grow in this. I want me to grow in this. Let's look out for each other. And they got together and they ate together and participated in rituals together. And they cried out to their king together. 
What was the common element in all of the marks of the church? They devoted themselves to stories about Jesus. They acted like Jesus to each other. They partook of Jesus in rituals. And they prayed to Jesus. If we want Christian community to form, not just an RUF, but Christians on campus, Christians in your church, in your small groups, you can't simply want friends. It'll never happen that way. You have to want Jesus. Let's pray.